Today we're speaking with Pete Starr, a self-employed trainer based in Manchester in the UK, who's building his own training company, Chili Pepper Development, serving companies locally and nationally. We find out what Pete's journey has been to date and which lessons he's learned which he can share with you. This is episode two of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Hey, and welcome to the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Every week, we bring you exciting news and interviews with training business experts and training business entrepreneurs from around the world. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. Here's your host, Mark Garrett Hayes. Hey, and welcome to the show. My name is Mark Garrett Hayes, and this is the podcast for you, for training business professionals all around the world. And the goal of the podcast is to help you to start to grow and to scale your training business. Today, as I said before the music, we're speaking to Pete Starr in Manchester in the UK. I most recently worked with Pete in New York, where we co-presented a two-day sales workshop for a major hospitality brand. So I thought I would ask Pete on the show to share some of his lessons with you. Hi, Pete. Thanks for coming on the program. So look, I thought we'd go right back to basics. what, what got you into the training business in the first place? And you might give us an understanding of how long you've been in the business and what it is you do. I think looking back at my career, it's only when you look back that you can join the dots to work out why you end up doing the thing that you actually love doing. I've always been a people-focused person. And there was a, a pivotal moment in my career where um, I'd been traveling and I applied for two jobs and I was, I was fortunate enough to be job offered both of them. Um, one was as an MBQ assessor, um, which kind of ticked my boxes in terms of that people side. So I was focused on people from early days. However, the other job was working for Coca-Cola as a salesperson and that came with an extra £3,000 a year and a, and a company van. So when you're in your mid-twenties, you follow the money. So I followed the sales route and account management route, which is, again, is very much people-based. Um, and that's when I really started to find my feet in so much as engaging with my team, one-to-one coaching, group meeting coaching. So that was when I realized that training was what I wanted to do. And I met two guys who were doing some external training for us. And I still keep in contact with one of them. And they were really really my inspiration to be freelance and work for myself. And that was for two reasons. I saw saw the money that we were paying. Um, but more importantly, I, I felt the engagement that external consultants could have and how quite liberating it could be. And that was about nine or 10 years ago. However, at the time, um, married, young children, mortgage. So the timing wasn't right to, to leave a role. A couple of shifts and twists and turns in life and then I ended up being made redundant needing to find a job or find a career and I tried to do both I got a job and then I also got offered four days of work at 250 pounds a day yet again that was another crossroads in life as to do I take the safe option that pays me 2,000 odd pounds per month after tax or do I take the risk of being freelance and actually going for it we had no money in the bank. We had a new house. We had two young kids. My wife wasn't working at the time, so it was a huge risk. Um, but it felt right. That was about four years ago now. And fortunately, um, with a lot of hard work and effort, it's truly paying off. So when you say um, freelance, 
Is that to suggest that you've both direct clients as well as work with training companies as one of their associates? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And when I started off, I, I took counsel with a few trusted people who have been in this type of business. And one of them said I could be either a very busy associate and earn a comfortable living, work hard, but not have to chase to sell my business. Or I could set up and be a direct trainer and engage with clients directly, earn more money and have more fun to some extent, um, but also some more pressure. Now, at the time when I went freelance, the money was a driving factor in security for home. So I took the associate trainer route first and foremost, because that was the easier route for me to generate cash which I needed to live. Now that I'm four years in, I've started the transition more so last year into sharing that focus so that I've got an element of associate work, but gradually and certainly through 2018, more and more so a focus on direct client work as well. So would you still consider yourself a freelance trainer? And shall we perhaps for listeners define what that actually means? Yeah, yeah. I've not really thought about it in much detail, Mark. I guess so, still freelance. I, I refer to it as associate work and direct work. So associate work working on behalf of another, of another provider, direct work being engaged directly with the end client. Either way, the work is freelancing. Yeah, I think that's quite accurate. It's funny because I've often heard that term, rather a bunch of terms mixed up together. I've heard people, particularly our uh, colleagues and listeners on the other side of the pond of the Atlantic, use terms like freelance or uh, sometimes associate, sometimes training consultant. And it's never really clear to me until I get into a conversation with someone to what extent they rely upon their own clients to provide them with an income or to what extent they actually work with training companies or someone I spoke to recently described them as a training vendor uh, and they're on their books as a training consultant. So there's a kind of a mix of terms. So I think it's often very helpful, particularly to people who are new to this, the idea of going out on your own as a training consultant. What does freelance actually mean? To what extent are you drumming up the business yourself or to which extent, if any, are you actually going through a training company such as Training Associates where we have the work brought to us once the people who talk to the client discover exactly what the needs are, they then go out to the pool of associates or freelance consultants and then enlist us to deliver the work. Does that make sense? Oh, completely, completely. And I think two, two points spring to mind as you talk, Mark, that firstly, what's probably more important is to what do our potential clients view the term as. So if we advertise ourselves on LinkedIn or on our website um, or on social media, what image do we portray to our potential clients? And secondly, I think reflecting on talking to lots of trainers um, across the world, they almost feel a little bit shy or modest about working as an associate for other companies almost as if that's the easy route I'd like to do direct, but I don't I don't want to say that I'm not that. Whereas actually, I think there's a lot to be said that if you want to work as part of a bigger organization, because being a, an associate trainer or a freelance trainer 
can be quite a lonely job. If you want to work as part of another organisation, there's no shame in that at all. And if that's the route that your career and your view as to what freelance looks like for you is, then promote that and be proud of that. I think I'm on board with that. And I'm, I'm just thinking, as I'm making some notes here, you, you mentioned in your previous answer, the fact that you are increasingly changing the ratio, my words, not yours, in terms of the amount of direct work you're doing. In other words, clients, you're generating business, you're generating without any middleman. And by middleman, I mean, of course, uh, a vendor or training company. What is your thinking behind that? And why has, has it been your choice to actually go more in that direction and less towards increasing the amount of associate or vendor work you're doing? I think um, one of the pieces of advice that I've received over the past that have stuck with me and certainly having been made redundant in my lifetime twice and being unemployed, I think you, you learn from certain experiences and, and that element of security is important. And I think that if I have direct client work, it gives me more security because I can potentially have 10 or 15 direct clients that I do a piece of work per year with. And if one or two of those go out of business or their industry is failing or, or I lose favor, favor with them for whatever reason, then I have more security because I still have eight or 10 other clients. So I, I think it's often driven by that. Equally for me personally, that element of being able to earn money whilst not actually delivering is appealing because as an associate trainer, you don't get sick pay, which I wish I did, way I feel. But you don't get sick pay when you're on holiday, you don't earn. But if I've got direct clients and that opens up opportunities for me to get other work that is delivered by other people, yet still goes through my business. So an element of recurring income that means that I can earn money whilst not physically being stood up in a training room. What you're alluding to is the fact that you may or you could subcontract work. So you have a, a training contract with a business and then you have the option to bring in a third party. In other words, another trainer uh, to deliver that contract. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So in, in effect, I become another training vendor. However, my plan isn't to become a huge training vendor because I would not like to lose complete contact with the customer. So still having an element of control, still enjoying the engagement and the, the kind of personal relationship with the client and the, and the client's kind of business. Um, but yeah, for sure, being able to bring other people, often other people who are a lot better capable at, at delivery than I am, but can also add that um, different dynamic. You're very modest. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In terms of the advice you'd give other people, let's just say that someone listening to this is perhaps within the corporate environment still. They've accrued sizable or adequate number of years of experience. We'll not try and pin anyone down to what that exact number might be for a variety of reasons. But let's just say someone's listening to this and thinking, you know what, I would like to go into pastures new and become a trainer, whether it's working with my own clients or simply working with another training company's clients. Uh, what would your advice be to someone thinking about making that leap? I think the same advice as for anybody making a significant career change is to really understand why you want to do it. So there are people who are associate trainers that I know that have gone into associate training as a lifestyle choice. So they 
want to work two days a week. They want to do other things outside of that. They don't want to work school holidays and they want to supplement an income, um, which is great. For me, it was more about building uh, a, a business and, and stretching myself and challenging myself and having more control about who I was and what I did. So very much identify why you want to make that change because undoubtedly there will be good days and bad days and particularly within the first six to 12 months there will be many times when you look in the mirror and question whether you've made the right choice or not there will also be times when your friends and family question whether you've made the right choice or not and so to keep yourself going in those early days I would say be very clear as to why you want to do it. And if it's lifestyle, great. If it's because you love people, great. If it's because you want freedom, great. Whatever your why is, find it and make it very clear to yourself personally. So it's really all about being honest with yourself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There was a small part of me and certainly in in friendly conversations with friends who said, kind of, why do you want to work for yourself? The general humor would be so I could work two or three days a week, have a day's worth of admin, play golf for a day. Um, the reality is very different for me. So a lot of people have this perception that uh, one of the reasons that we as trainers uh, elect to work for ourselves is so that we can have time not working. But actually, a lot of what we do when we're not training is actually trying to get the next training gig. Um, in your experience, what activities are the most successful in persuading people to give people like you and me a chance to train their people, to come into their company and to make a difference? It's still something that I'm trying to completely pin down for my business. Um, I'm very much in the process of investing um, and learning by failure as well as by success. So what's working for me at the moment and for for many people is connecting with the people who you've worked with in the past and certainly keeping an eye on people who move around in terms of job role, offering that kind of reach out to them, not to sell them something, but to drop them a text message or send them a LinkedIn message or something on social media to say, hey, I noticed that you moved job to being a sales director in the new company. I hope it's going well. It'd be great to have a coffee if ever you want to have a chat. And that's been the best thing for me so far. Another side to that is meeting people and kind of hanging out where your clients hang out. So identify who the decision makers would be within your organization, within an organization who you'd want as your direct client. So for me, often it's sales directors or HR directors. And then go to the networking meetings, go to these seminars, go to the exhibitions that those people go to. Meet, meet them, get yourself in front of them. Often push that introverted self part of you to one side and, and be bold and, and reach out and shake a hand. Over and above that, I've done some cold calling, which is hard in terms of time. Um, but can be fruitful if you get through to the right people. And also some email campaigns. Again, you've got to put a lot in to get only one or two out. So 
there's lots of different ways of doing it and I would say trial and error is very useful however first and foremost reach out to the people that you know and the people who know the people that you know which thing do you think someone could get to grips with pretty quickly and perhaps see uh, quick wins or early results in doing yeah um, I would say for me personally it's the reaching out to people that you've met or worked with previously and generally for me personally friends have never maybe they know me too well but friends have never recommended me um, for any work <laughs> um, maybe, okay. maybe, there's a, maybe there's a reflection um, okay. oh, oh, whether it's because I've always kept kind of maybe because the friendships are true friendships rather than kind of work relationships I don't know but you know I know that it does work for some people so I'd say reaching out to people that you've worked with before to to connect with and ask for, ask for advice and not to go straight into send a message to somebody that you've not seen for three years and say, hey, can you give me the contact details of your sales director? Because most people will say, we'll just ignore you. But to to be genuine with people and and reach out with them for the best reasons and to kind of in your heart of hearts know that, hey, I'm just doing this because I actually care about my network and I'm, I'm wanting to foster it and maybe there will be something that comes of it and maybe they won't, but I really don't mind because I'm, I'm doing it for the right intentions. Um, so I'd say that that's the ideal. Now the challenge is if you've worked in an organization for 15 years and it's been one organization, you may feel that your network is limited. Maybe that's where you reach out and look through LinkedIn for your first connections, but then also for their connections that you're not linked in with. And maybe have some conversations of, hey, can you give me some advice? I see that you're you're connected to somebody in that organization. Any idea how I could approach that organization? And I think if you're genuine, then most people will react positively, even if it is to say, yeah, I know the person, but I'm not quite comfortable to, to put you there. Um, but if you don't ask, you don't get. In terms of networking, you mentioned um, networking with prospective contacts and and obviously not your friends because that doesn't seem to yeah. work <laughs> um what about networking with other trainers have you seen that uh, pay any dividends i've seen it pay dividends from a an ideas perspective i think it's really useful as a kind of motivational tool for yourself i think it's really useful when you've got an idea that you want to hone and you need somebody else to give some steer or to bounce ideas off I think it is it is lonely being a trainer. So having a trainer network is is sometimes inval invaluable. And certainly, there's a couple of trainers that I work with on collaborations that may haven't may maybe not have brought things in yet, but at some point, hopefully, will do. In terms of um, what you think would be the kinds of well, social media platforms, for want of a better word, are there any out there that particularly resonate with you? I mean, for example, would you use things like LinkedIn, Instagram Stories? Would you do any social media production, article writing, or blogging? Does that have any traction for you? Sure, sure. I think I'm probably a little bit behind the curve, to be honest, on it, Mark. Um, I'm primarily LinkedIn and I will put blogs onto my website and then share them on LinkedIn um, and reshare and reshare. So that's my primary kind of route to client is, is LinkedIn. Facebook, I don't have a presence on. Um, for me personally, and it is only a personal opinion, Facebook is more about the social, mm. um, but can still certainly be of value without a doubt, but maybe, maybe for me that's going to be in time. 
Um, Instagram is the other one that I'm aware of that clients potentially use, but I don't. So if there was another one that I was going to, that I would get involved in, I would get on Instagram. Right. In terms of the um, training companies you work with, you're obviously an associate with several training companies and we're certainly, we're in one, at least we're both associates of one in particular that we've uh, worked on before. Are there any particular ones, and without naming names, where you'd think, you know what, Mm, I wish I hadn't perhaps uh, darkened their door, uh, you know, because for whatever reason, the money isn't right or the terms and conditions aren't right. Are there any kind of, you know, words of warning or advice you give people to help them understand how to decide if a particular training company is the right kind of company for them? What a, what a pertinent question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, um, we, we probably haven't got enough time to go into all of this detail. As, as I mentioned about my, my journey into where I am now, my first year or two, any advert, any training company that was had the, had the possible hint of wanting some associate trainers I was trying to engage with, I signed many non-disclosure agreements, uh, had many Skype calls, and often the smaller companies only maybe wanted one or two associates and sometimes wanted to find them, but I didn't actually have any business to, to actually give them. So I, I, I went through a lot of selection. One thing that I realized is that training companies' business goes up and down as well. So my, my first year of trading, half of my business came from one training company. Now, that was a nice thing to do because I got to know their business and everything was great. It wasn't great in terms of payment because it was 45 days from end of the month, but it was work. So that was great. The second year that I had with that training company, I had £1,000 from them. I learned a lesson there of not putting all of my my eggs into one basket. And fortunately, I kind of spread my wings across four or five companies. I think the truth is that the more you work with certain clients and depending on the clients that they are winning, the more you get to know where the fit is. The frustrations that I have at the moment with two are that one training company has been terrible at paying and they've had some financial issues themselves as an organization. They've had invest private investment come in. They've been treading water as an organization. I think it'd be fair to say that's a shame that that relationship is where it is, although it's still positive because they still owe me money. So I'm very careful not to kind of chew, chew the hand that feeds me. But equally, I'm very careful not to take extra work from them until certain monies come. So I think that's a, a fine line to tread of if any training companies that aren't hot to pay you, just be aware of how much work you do do for them because you could be quite exposed to a significant amount of either time that you've spent and you've not been paid for or expenses that you've accrued. And... The, the second company um, that just re- recently, it, it gave me half my business last year, all fine and dandy, um, and recently sent out a message to say, um, join our special trainer group as a preferred partner, and you'll get all of this, this and this. Oh, and we want you to put your day rate down by 15%. And that was kind of quite a shock. So, you know, that's, but that's a big organization and that's a choice that they've made. And I think one of the things that I've learned is that Almost every day could bring its ups and downs, but every up that, that you get, you might have a down the next day or you might have another up. 
every down that you get, you're probably going to have an up the next day if you're doing enough of the right things. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with all of what you've said. Again, without without mentioning names, I've I've had similar experiences, and you, I think you kind of just begin to uh, recognize as you do when you enter a trade or any kind of business for the first time, things are new to you. You don't know who, who, who's out there. You don't know what they're doing, the reputation. You look at the shiny website and you read the shiny contract and you're impressed. <laughs> you're taken in with these things. Yeah. Um, and then by the same token, there are companies out there that may not seem like they're very active, but they have a, a hell of a name in the industry. And although the website is not very polished, there's a sizable amount of, work that can come your way. So it very much is something which you have to, you have to sort of dip your toes into and, and find out the hard way. There is, I'm just thinking in terms of the answer to my own question, is there a way to, to learn? And I think that certainly one of the things that I would look at, and I, I'm sure you would agree based upon what you've just said, is the terms of payment. Uh, and that's often indi- an indication of, um, how uh, you could say parsimonious or tight, uh, to use the vernacular, a company is. If if companies, in my experience, are very finicky or extremely particular, unusually particular about things like expenses, uh, or maybe try and beat you down in terms of a daily rate, or try maybe once in your in the course of a relationship with you. Or maybe demand, you know, 45 days patience before you actually get paid. Those, to me, are all warning signs. Sure, absolutely. And, you know, I, I get it that an organization needs to manage its own um, operating costs, as, as we do as small business owners. However, the good one um, pays a good rate, pays expenses, pays generally within a week of sending the invoice in, um, is honest and upfront if they question anything but we'll work to rectify it and we'll recognize the value that their trainers represent because in essence, a trainer holds the crown jewels of any training organization because they are the person in front of a client doing the work and representing that company. So you can have the, an amazing training company in the background that has great MDs and HR and operations and all of the training material and all that. But if the person who's in the classroom on the client site in front of the delegates and in front of the, the kind of client decision maker isn't on board and doesn't represent that training company to the best of their abilities as if they're an employee, then there's an opportunity, there's a chance there that that training isn't going to land. So I think the, the best companies re- recognize that and respect the trainers and work with the trainers rather than seeing the trainers as just another subcontractor who they could lose one and then just bring another one in off the street but yeah there there is a there is a spectrum i guess of of training companies and you you write very much so in the early days you will pick up some signs to say yeah these guys are on board and on it or not sure how they value value trainers and i think that's you can still get business out of those companies However, just don't put all your eggs into that basket. Okay, so on that point, how many baskets does a trainer need to have? I mean, (laughs) you know, we've all got a bunch of eggs. We could, uh, just looking at the calendar that I have now in front of me for March and April and May, mine is filling up, but, you know, there are invariably, or there are are almost inevitably bound to be gaps. Um, Where do you think, or what strategy do you think is most effective when it comes to trying to fill in these gaps 
committing to the right organizations, but at the same time, you know, leaving yourself with enough leeway to, you know, have days on standby should some, some should work come in, which is from more quality vendors. Yeah, um, again, quite a pertinent question to me at this point in time, because my paranoia of four years ago that still lingers in terms of don't turn any work down at all because you don't know when your next paycheck's going to come kind of still drives my calendar management, which means my days get squeezed and squeezed and squeezed, which means that I haven't got extra days to do my selling, which means I'm doing it at the, at, in the evening or, or the weekend, um, and I haven't got time to go to seminars or exhibitions. So, yeah, absolutely. I've, I've gone too far the other way in terms of filling up every part of my diary. So in terms of how many associate relationships, for me, you you learn that as you go. But I think there are painful steps to get to that place and don't get too frustrated and certainly don't take it out on that organization in the early days because the people who are responsible for the scheduling will very quickly look somewhere else. So it's uh, in the early stages, if you are with that type of company that books you and then says, sorry, it's not happening. Um, be aware of it, but don't show too much negativity because you won't get work from them again. Having said that, in terms of number of associate relationships for me, I think probably four or five is a good amount. That that means you can get close to their people, you can get close to the salespeople, their schedulers, their, their MDs or head of training or head of faculty. And you can get to understand their material. Um, too many more than that, and you start to dilute. But I think if you have four or five associate relationships, then that will that should create enough of a good living for you. Yeah, that's a great point because I'm thinking of the the number of uh, associates, rather uh, associate training companies I work with. They don't call themselves associate training companies, but I'm their training companies and I'm one of their associates. And I can think that uh, the more I had on the books or the more organizations on whose books I have been an associate trainer, uh, there's a certain amount of time which is required uh, of you by them to get to know their material well enough to stand up in front of their clients, or at least they should be. Um, there are certainly organizations which alarmingly have simply looked at my CV, sent me some kind of PowerPoint presentation, and based upon that alone have, have believed that I'm ready to stand in front of their clients. On the other hand, I've had organizations who've been very slow to put me in front of their people. They've been very rigorous about my credentials, checking whether I'm actually knowledgeable, whether I can translate their material into an actually enjoyable, rewarding day for their clients. And in some respects, that actually gives me more confidence when organizations are like that, because I think, you know what, if they're serious about having people of quality stand in front of their clients, then they're more than likely going to be a better kind of organization to do business with in the long term. But that's not always true. It, it, it tends to be only by experience that you find out. I've, I've worked with some organizations where they've been quite rigorous, but yet for some reason, the, the amount of business which I've expected from that hasn't really come in. So it's, uh, it's very much a judgment, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And the company that a really big training provider in the UK that I've done a lot of work for, when I first engaged with them, 
they were very aggressive in what the day rate needed to be that I quoted them and also sent me a box with things in to deliver a public course for leadership and said, I will live and die on the quality of my net promoter scores at the end. And if they're not very good, I won't be back. And if they're good, then they may take me back. They said that. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. And now I've had the relationship for three years with them and I've taken a lot of business with, with them last year. But equally, they're the ones who are the hardest in terms of negotiating terms. And they pay well, which um, they pay quickly, not well, um, which is good. But equally, they do also cancel many courses. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a mix of different pros and cons with, with many organizations. Just one good question on that. Uh, I'm conscious of your time here. How do you prepare for a training company's audition process? And I'm sure they vary because I think you and I would agree on that. They, they, do, they vary. Some are quite... Uh, uh, they, they want to bring you in. They want you to stand up in front of your peers. They want to evaluate you maybe through multiple processes. Do you think there's any one way to confidently, particularly if you're listening to this and you're a new or prospective trainer, what is a good way to prepare for a training company's audition process? In terms of the audition process, and it's a really interesting dynamic for trainers. So in terms of what preparation to take, for me, look at the training company see what their values are, understand who their clients are. If possible, look online and see the syllabuses that they have and check the wording of that syllabus. And is it very corporate and straight or is it really fun and engaging? And that will give you a steer for, for what to expect. And then on the actual day, take it as a, as a day that whether you win, lose or, or draw in terms of actually getting the business, it's an amazing opportunity to develop yourself as a trainer. So that helps pr- you prepare your mindset. I've seen people in training auditions become nervous wrecks because they are under pressure. They put too much focus as to the output and wanting to, to impress that they don't impress. Um, so I think the, the mental side of that is is super important. So get get a positive mindset, get a mindset that is I'm going to engage, I'm going to bring my A game, but I'm going to listen as well as question. I'm going to absorb as well as kind of teach and engage with other people. What I want to get out of it is I want to become a better trainer at the end of this day than I was at the start of that day. I think if you go with that mentality, that will probably give you a good chance of representing who you are as a person. And that is probably going to give you a better chance of being authentic, which I think most training companies will value. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. The training audition process, I should explain in case someone is listening and hearing that term and not knowing what that really means. The training audition process is literally the process which a training company uh, instigates in order to bring new trainers into the company uh, team. So they will literally say, would you like to join us as an associate or a freelance training consultant to train our clients? Here is the process to apply. You need to do this, then this, then this. And typically one of the stages of the process involves a face-to-face meeting and a subsequent presentation where you're literally on your feet, either in front of the training company's people or perhaps in front of other trainers who are in for that day. And then you're evaluated and asked back 
if there is a part two or not asked back, as the case may be. <laughs> it's a two-way street. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's very much a, a learning process. So even if you're not successful on that day, uh, it's certainly not a reason not to do it. It's something you'll come away from a little bit stronger having been through that kind of process. Because the next time you go through a company audition process, you'll know exactly what to do. Now, there are differences, but once you have experienced the fear, experienced the nervousness of standing up in front of other people, which you have to do, of course, if you're to be a trainer, uh, because most of the time you'll never have met the people you're training before, um, you will gain from the experience of auditioning and you'll become a much, much better trainer in doing so. So it's a place you have to start from and I think it's something that people have to get to grips with early on in the process. Um, as a final question, Pete, what would you think would be the one piece of advice you would give yourself if you had to start all over again? Now, you mentioned you've been training now for the bones of nine to 10 years. Um, if you could go back in time in your time machine and say, right, grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and say, you know, here is one piece of advice or maybe one or two pieces of advice what would that be? Um, I think for, for me personally, don't leave it so long to uh, do, to do it would, would be right for me in my situation. I, I proved to myself that even with very little cash in the bank, um, I was able to work hard, do a good job for people and, and build up a, a really steady income stream and, and enjoy doing so. That would be my first piece of advice, but that's very, very specifically for me personally. The, the piece of advice that I would give, um, not two pieces of advice, one piece of advice that another guy gave to me, that he rambled on for ages about different things that I could do, and he boiled it down to one statement, and he said, Pete, just do something to make it happen. And it was great for me because it wasn't technical, it wasn't specifically strategic, it was purely about making a positive step. And I think that's that stuck with me most days to say, right, what am I doing today? Just do something to make it happen. Right, I'm going to send a LinkedIn message. I'm going to tidy up my website. I'm going to do that blog. Just do something. And so that was great for me. And then the second thing that really uh, strikes home for me personally, when I started, I thought that I needed to go out and spend a lot of money to get qualified as a coach lot of money to get qualified to do profiling or or whatever qualification because I was focusing on the things that I didn't have. When you set out for yourself, focus on the strengths of the things that you already have and build on those rather than think about what you don't have. Because there are some amazingly brilliant people out there training, but there's no one person who can do it all. Okay, listen, it's been very good of you to give us so much time today uh, here on the program. Thanks again, Pete. Pleasure, Mark. All the best. Pete, thanks so much for coming on the program this morning. Thanks to you for your time. And thanks to you, our listeners, for spending time with us again this week. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy day to listen to this episode of the podcast. So make sure you subscribe to the show for Training Business Talk every single Thursday. And we'd be very grateful if you would leave a rating on Apple Podcasts because this helps us to promote the show and to attract the right guests, the kinds of guests whose journey and tips and advice can help you with your journey. You can check out the podcast, as always, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, 
on Spotify, and of course, on our website, www.trainingbusiness.com. So until next Thursday, have a great training business week. Thanks once more for listening to this episode of the trainingbusiness.com podcast. Go to trainingbusiness.com and subscribe right now to be notified of great competitions, upcoming VIP episodes, and amazing special offers to help you succeed in your training business. See you next time.